This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Foster Ovenator, as well as a bunch of dinosaur news. A lot of technical stuff, if you're into that. <laughs> a few things that aren't so technical, too. <laughs> yep, we like to mix it up. <laughs> but first, uh, we just want to quickly announce that our Patreon page has changed. Patreon rolled out a new design, and we clicked the button today. So if you go to visit, you'll notice that it is much more visual, and we hope that you'll enjoy it. So please check it out, patreon.com slash inodino. Yep. First in the news is an article titled, The Oldest Jurassic Dinosaur, a Basal Neotheropod from the Hetangian of Great Britain. It was published in PLOS One and written by David M. Martill and others. And as we often do, we read Shana Montanari's article about this that added a lot of good details on Forbes.com. So they collected a quasi-marine, they call it, block of rock on the south coast of Wales near the city of Cardiff. And dating the specimen was easy because it had a particular ammonite called Siloceras, I think it's pronounced, I don't know, which is actually used to define the beginning of the Jurassic era in some cases because of its abundance, and it was only around for that very short period of time. And you're probably wondering why there was an ammonite fossilized with a dinosaur. Martill believes that after the dinosaur died, it was washed out to sea, and that's where it fossilized, and that's why they're calling it a quasi-marine block of rock. If you're one of our listeners listening from the UK or Northwestern Europe, you should check out the first picture in this article because it has a really good illustration of some of the known Jurassic geology and how it aligns with the modern countries and its open access so you can get to it. In particular, it kind of shows what was underwater versus where you might actually find some fossils in those countries. They named the species Dracoraptor hanigani. Dracoraptor is from Draco, alluding to the dragon of Wales. <laughs> with raptor meaning robber, and the species name honors Nick and Rob Hannigan, who discovered the skeleton and then donated it. From the Forbes article, Broussard explains, quote, All props to the Hungarian brothers who found this once-in-a-lifetime specimen and then donated it to science. It's the type of story that makes paleontologists all warm inside, end quote. <laughs> warm and fuzzy. Yeah. I guess that's how you get a species named after you. 
make a paleontologist feel all warm inside. <laughs> so being 40% complete is one of the most complete theropod fossils from the Jurassic era in Europe, and I'm pretty impressed that it's 40% complete given that it floated out into the ocean before being fossilized. So of that 40%, they found parts of the skull, including a complete tooth, which was serrated, vertebrae, as well as ribs, a good part of the left forelimb, about half of the hips, which is especially important in identifying it as a theropod, and part of the hind limb, as well as some toes. The artistic rendering shows it as bipedal, which isn't surprising for a theropod, and partially covered in proto-feathers, which I liked, even though it is one of the older theropods. They say that, quote, Dracoraptor possesses a combination of basal characteristics that make it difficult to place phylogenetically, end quote. But they believe that it is, quote, close to the base of Coelophysoidea, end quote. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what it might have acted like, kind of like a Coelophysis. Next in the news is another dinosaur discovery. This one comes from the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology titled, a primitive hadrosaurid from southeastern North America and the origin and early evolution of duck-billed dinosaurs. It was by Albert Prieto Marquez, Gregory M. Erickson, and June A. Ebersole. The last author works at FSU, and his interview on fsu.edu is where a lot of this information comes from since the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology is behind a paywall. So they describe one of the oldest known hadrosaurids in the article. It's named Eotrachodon orientalis, meaning dawn rough tooth from the east. The name is meant to be a tribute to Trachodon, which was the first duck-billed dinosaur named in 1856. And from the east is because it comes from Appalachia, which is the eastern part of North America, or at least it was back in the Cretaceous period. So they found a complete skull, many vertebrae, part of the hips, and some limb bones near a creek in Montgomery County, Alabama. Much like the Draco raptor, it was found in marine sediment, suggesting it was washed out to sea after it died. Even though it's from the late Cretaceous, it's actually very old for a hadrosaur, and it was fossilized 83 million years ago, which is pretty recently. It's kind of crazy to think about, but the end of the Cretaceous is about as recently as you get with dinosaurs. Except for birds. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Non-avian dinosaurs. It had a large crest on its nose and unique teeth. It's unclear how they are unique from what I could find. They just called them unique. But they said that they were clearly meant for grinding. So maybe that's what they mean by unique, that they were grinding teeth. Ebersole, director of collections at McWayne Science Center, said, quote, the discovery of Eotrachodon suggests that duck-billed dinosaurs originated in Appalachia and dispersed to other parts of the world at some point after the seaway lowered, opening a land corridor to western North America, end quote. And what he's referring to is that North America, at this point in the Cretaceous, had split off from the rest of the world and was also split in half by the western interior seaway, which split the western half into Laramidia, and the eastern half into Appalachia. So once the hadrosaurids evolved in Appalachia, which is what he's saying, then they could move around later, but only once sea level went down a little bit and they could get around. Ebersole added, quote, they just needed to get off the island. From there, they became the cows of the Cretaceous, end quote. 
<laughs> I love that nickname. Yeah, I think we've mentioned that one before. And it's pretty fitting since they were plant eaters and they were all over the place. Just chewing cud. Yeah, with grinding teeth. <laughs> There's one other good line in the FSU article. Quote, Erickson brought some bone samples and teeth back to his lab at Florida State for further analysis. He found it difficult to pinpoint the exact age of the dinosaur because no growth lines appeared in the bone samples. However, the highly vascularized bones show that it was growing very rapidly at the time of death, akin to a teenager, and stood to get much larger, end quote. They estimate that at full growth, it would have been about 20 to 30 feet long, which is obviously a pretty broad range, so... We'll have to hope to find more Eotrachodons so that we can narrow down their size. And the remains of the Eotrachodon are housed at the McWayne Science Center in Birmingham, Alabama, and are currently on display in Ebersole's laboratory. So if you're in Alabama, I don't think we have too many listeners in Alabama, but you might be able to go check it out. Next in the news is an article titled A Gigantic New Dinosaur from Argentina and the Evolution of the Sauropod Hindfoot. It was published in Nature's Scientific Reports, and it's written by Bernardo J. Gonzalez Riga and others. It's about a dinosaur called Notocolossus Gonzalez Parejasi. The etymology, I'm just going to pull straight from the article because I like their summary of it. Quote, from the Greek notus, southern, and Latin colossus, in reference to the gigantic size and Gondwanan provenance of this new taxon. Species name honors Dr. Jorge Gonzalez Parejas, who has collaborated and provided legal guidance on the research, protection, and preservation of dinosaur fossils from Mendoza province for nearly two decades. In so doing, he has advised researchers on the creation of a natural park that serves to protect dinosaur footprints in Mendoza, end quote. So I guess he made the paleontologist feel all warm and fuzzy. <laughs> and that's, how, that's how the species got named after him. Well done. <laughs> Notoculus was discovered in southern Mendoza province in Argentina, and they found a complete humerus, which is 1.76 meters, or 5 feet 9 inches long, and the longest of any known titanosaur upper arm bone. It includes the fifth complete hind foot of a titanosaur, too. Only four others have ever been found. The authors say that, quote, knowledge of titanosaurian pedal structure is critical to understanding the stance and locomotion of these enormous herbivores and, by extension, gigantic terrestrial vertebrates as a whole, end quote. Gonzalez Riga says that Notocolossus is one of the largest dinosaurs known. They also say that titanosaurs account for about a third of the sauropod diversity, which I hadn't heard before, and they emphasized that though some were incredibly massive, others were no heavier than, quote, modern cattle. But missing bones are a bigger problem in the large titanosaurs than the small, so this finds a little bit extra interesting, because some of those hind feet were small titanosaurs. Like most titanosaurs, this appears to have been from the late Cretaceous, and in addition to the hind foot, and a front humerus, they also found part of the hip and several vertebrae, which are also typically hard to find. They believe that it's a sister taxon to the recent titanosaur Dreadnoughtus, which had a 1.6 meter humerus, or about 10% shorter than Notocolossus. And although that might show that 
Notocolossus was bigger than Dreadnoughtus, the femur is typically used to estimate the weight and not the humerus, so it would be nice if they could find a femur to get a little more clarity there. And speaking of large titanosaurs from Argentina, even though Notocolossus sounds pretty impressive, there was an even larger titanosaur found in Argentina. According to the BBC, it was found by a farmer who found the tip of a bone in 2014, and it is possibly the biggest dinosaur discovered. Well, depending how you define big. So based on its thigh bones, they think that it was 130 feet or 40 meters long and 65 feet or 20 meters tall, weighing around 77 tons. Oof. Big guy, yeah. <laughs> So it's possibly the largest land animal to ever lived, but they know that it is not just another Notocolossus because it's about 10 million years older than Notocolossus. And according to an article in the Post-Gazette, on February 17th, you can see a new nature documentary about this dinosaur. It's called Raising the Dinosaur Giant, and it will give more details about this unnamed titanosaur that lived in Argentina 100 million years ago. Cool. I like a good documentary, especially about dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Next in the news is a sciencemag.org article that Chris shared with us on Facebook. So thanks, Chris. It was a very interesting article, and it has a much more manageable title than the two journal articles that it references, being, you could probably have outrun a T-Rex. Pretty simple. The first journal article that it referenced was published in the journal Nature and is titled An Approach to Scoring Cursorial Limb Proportions in Carnivorous Dinosaurs and an Attempt to Account for Allometry. And it was written by W. Scott Persons IV and Philip J. Curry, which reminds me I need to start those new classes at the University of Alberta that were just put up on Coursera. Oops. (laughs) There's still time. Yeah. And the second one is published in Science Direct. It's titled A Tyrannosaur Trackway at Glenrock Lance Formation in Wyoming. And that one is written by Sean D. Smith, W. Scott Persons IV, again, and Lita Zing. In that Science Direct article, they talk about a new set of tyrannosaur footprints that they found and ultimately calculated that T-Rex would move at about four and a half to eight kilometers an hour or three to five miles an hour. And Smith says that, quote, this result discounts previous speculation that tyrannosaurid walking speeds were notably slower than those of other large theropods, end quote. And that's kind of funny that they say three to five miles an hour is faster than other large theropods. That seems like not that fast, especially when you think about the T-Rex in Jurassic Park chasing a Jeep at 20 or 30 miles an hour, and this one's going five. But anyway. (laughs) Leisurely, that's what that is. Yeah. (laughs) They do say that it doesn't prove that the T-Rex couldn't have gone faster than that, since this is just a snapshot of one T-Rex moving, and there are no known trackways of running tyrannosaurs. There was a previous study, too, that showed the tyrannosaur could travel as fast as 11 kilometers an hour or about 7 miles an hour, But still, that's not really that fast, and almost everybody could outrun it at that pace. The Nature article by Scott Persons and Philip Curry established a link between theropod lower leg length and body mass, 
and their goal wasn't to decide the maximum speed of these theropods, but rather to compare the relative cursorial ability of different species, basically meaning if their limbs appeared to be evolved for running or not. And they point out that, quote, among modern animals, lower leg length is a statistically significant predictor of relative running speeds, although its predictive power is strongly improved when comparisons are limited to closely related groups with similar overall limb anatomy and locomotive styles, end quote. So really what they're saying is it's difficult to figure out how quick an animal would move just based on the ratio of thigh bone to lower leg bone. And the ratio of the thigh bone. <laughs> <laughs> and because smaller theropods tend to have a longer humerus relative to their body, it's important to compare the expected size of this ratio of bones rather than the absolute ratio to get a real indication of what a quote-unquote cursorial body would look like. So I'm just going to go into the math real quick because I can't resist. So they compared the femur and lower leg length measurements and made a predictive equation between the two. Then they compared the predicted value of the ratio to the actual value to get a cursorial limb proportion or CLP score for the species. In other words, it's a way of estimating how much longer the lower leg is compared to what a quote-unquote normal theropod would have at that size, and that deviation from quote-unquote normal shows how adapted its leg structure is to running. So they draw a comparison with this encephalization quotient that we've mentioned before, which talks about how smart an animal is, and you can't just look at the brain size because depending on how big of an animal you are, you need a different brain size, and it doesn't scale the way you'd expect it to. So what you do is you look at a normal animal of that size and how big its brain is, and then you look at that particular animal's brain size, and you can get a better estimation of how smart it would be. This is the same kind of thing except with running ability. So you look at something with a normal bone structure and you say like, okay, that's kind of in the middle. And then if you see a higher CLP score, then you think, oh, it's faster than other dinosaurs in that general size. Whereas if you see a smaller CLP score, then you think it would be slower than ones of that relative size. So one of the more interesting things from the study may be that Nanotyrannus and Tyrannosaurus had quite different results which the authors believe give more credibility to Nanotyrannus being its own genus, because there's a lot of people that think Nanotyrannus is just a junior synonym to Tyrannosaurus. And the Science Direct article, which determined that T-Rex would move at about 4.5 to 8 kilometers an hour, mentioned that they weren't sure if the tracks were from a subadult T-Rex or a Nanotyrannus, which could change things a bit since we now think they had significantly different proportions when it comes to potential running ability, you know, that might kind of screw up the whole guess about T-Rex running speed. The Science Mag article also quotes Thomas Holtz Jr. saying, quote, The types of sediment that are good for preserving footprints are typically wet and sloppy, not the best surface on which a dinosaur could run at full speed, end quote. So he's a little bit skeptical that we would ever even find tracks showing a dinosaur running at full speed. So all of these things are a little bit more what was a typical moving around speed than a full-on sprint speed. 
The articles are interesting, though, in that they show a general evolution of a higher CLP score within the species, with a couple of exceptions like dromaeosaurs. And they managed to show that some of the smaller dinosaurs that had previously been thought of as having an excellent running ability were using the absolute ratio rather than a ratio that was typical for its size, so they may not have been quite as quick among their peers as we had previously thought. Next up, a team of researchers are in Antarctica this month looking for dinosaur fossils. Well, they're looking for a bunch of different kinds of fossils, but dinosaur fossils are included. This team comes from the U.S., Australia, and South Africa, and their project is funded by the National Science Foundation. And according to FIDS.org, one of the questions that they want to find answers for is, quote, Did Antarctica play a critical part in the origins of certain modern bird and mammal groups, or was the evolution of species there more similar to what was happening in other parts of the world? And we'll be excited to hear more, especially when they come back. Yeah, and we want to go to Antarctica just to see what Antarctica's like. But it'd be cool to go there for a dinosaur dig. It would be. Give you an excuse to go. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, you're just kind of going to hang out in Antarctica, and I don't know how fun that is. Yeah, you see some penguins. Look at the penguins. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm all done with the heavy-duty articles now, and I've got some lighter ones. (laughs) This one is titled The Top 20 Best Dinosaur Games According to GamingBolt.com, and it's a really good list. I was actually amazed at how good the list is, and every entry also has a little short video to go along with it that you can tell they kind of cut down because... Like when they show number five, it always starts with the end of number six and the beginning of number four. But anyway, um, I totally disagree with their order. I think their order is just insane. But (laughs) the 20 of them includes some awesome games, some games I had never even heard of, and some games that I don't like that much, but they're in just an order that you probably wouldn't really like either, being dinosaur enthusiasts. Number 20 on their list was Ark Survival Evolved. We've talked about that several times before. It looks like an awesome game. It's the one where you're a human, but you've gone back in time or traveled in some way, and now you're on an island covered in dinosaurs, and you can either train them or hunt them or both. But in this review, they also mentioned that you could put a saddle on a pterodactyl and fly it, which sounds super awesome. I hadn't heard that before. And at first I thought that maybe they only gave this ranking number 20 because it hasn't officially come out yet, but there are other games that haven't come out yet that look way worse that are much higher up the list. So (laughs) I don't think that's the issue (laughs) because that would probably be number two on my list. Anyway, number 19 they gave to Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon, and it includes dinosaurs with huge claws and lasers coming out of their mouths and looks really fun. I'm going to have to try that game. I actually just got Far Cry 3 on a humble bundle. So, I'm ready. Next is Dino Crisis, which is a survival horror game from the late 90s. I don't think you really need to know anything else. Survival horror is pretty obvious. Dinosaurs are trying to eat you. Next is Jurassic Park, the one from Sega. And it's an old platformer style game that they say still looks great. I mean... It looks like a Sega platformer. That's great. I don't know. (laughs) 
Number 16, they just gave to all the Yoshi games. And the video mostly shows the Woolly World yarn game that we talked about. And I think that's a pretty good choice. Warm and fuzzy. Yep. (laughs) Number 15, they gave to the Turok series, which is the one where you just go around shooting dinosaurs. It's kind of another survival horror type one. 14, they gave to Primal Carnage. And in that one, you either play as a human or a dinosaur, and there's a team of humans and a team of dinosaurs, and you fight in these big online battles. That one looks pretty fun. It's a little bit old at this point, but looks cool. Number 13 is Lego Jurassic World, and Sabrina and I have mentioned before, that's our favorite. Definitely for playing together, it's got a great co-op mode, and I think in terms of fun to play, it's the best on the list. You can also be a dinosaur. Yeah, and you can be a dinosaur in that too. It might not have the most replayability since there's no online area to it or anything. And it's definitely not the most realistic and probably not the most fun in single player. But as far as co-ops go, it's, I think, the way to go. Next is the Monster Hunter series, which isn't even really dinosaurs. There's maybe a couple real dinosaurs in it. And you go around gathering armor and weapons and you fight these big monsters jumping around like a superhero. It's kind of weird. Number 11 is Skylanders. It's another dinosaur-like game, which is a quote-unquote toys-to-life game, which I hadn't heard that category before, but I was familiar with the category. If you're not familiar with what it is, you probably have held on to more money than people that are familiar with them, (laughs) because basically you have to buy these figurines, and they have a little computer chip in them, so when you put them on a little pad... You can play as that character in the virtual game. So you have to buy a bunch of figurines that are pretty expensive generally, and then you can play as them. And then in this case, they include some dinosaur-ish ones. And apparently the game's kid-friendly, which is pretty unusual for this list. I think Lego Jurassic World is pretty kid-friendly, but most of these aren't. Next is Star Fox Adventures. I didn't realize there was a Star Fox Adventures game. I played the Star Fox where you fly around, but not an adventure game. This is a GameCube game where you play a Star Fox and you're on foot fighting dinosaurs on a planet that's covered in dinosaurs and all you have is a big stick. So, pretty weird game. A big stick? Yes. Next is Orion Prelude. If you're looking for a newer dinosaur shoot-em-up hunter game... This one might be what you're looking for. It's only a dollar on Steam on PC, and it looks pretty well polished and even includes pterodactyls to shoot at, and you can get in vehicles and drive around and chase them. I actually just bought this one because it's a dollar and it looks pretty cool. The next one is No Man's Sky, and this one showed up on Colbert's new show. What's that one called? The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Yeah. So I think it was one of the first episodes they had the people who made this game come on and basically there's a seemingly infinite number of planets. I think there is a limit to them, but it's like a quadrillion or something crazy. And sometimes the planets have dinosaurs on them or dinosaur like things. When you land on the planet, you can name all the species if they haven't been discovered before. There is a Colbert dinosaur, I think out there. Yeah. Colbertosaurus or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. So that one, Kind of interesting, sort of dinosaur related. It's supposed to just be about evolution. and. It sounds like a really cool game. That's probably why it's ranked so highly. Yeah, it's kind of a cool concept. I don't think it's really dinosaurs, though. But anyway, 
Next is Horizon Zero Dawn, which is set to launch on PS4 this year. And <laughs> the game plot is that you're in a post-apocalyptic but futuristic world where you fight giant dinosaur robots with things like bow and arrows with explosive arrows. So if you want to fight giant dinosaur robots and you have a PS4, that is your favorite game ever. Number six is Time Machine VR, which is a VR game. I mean, I think you just move around. I don't really know if that's a game that's on Steam. And it, it lets you explore a prehistoric world underwater. As far as I can tell, it's not above water. So that means there aren't any dinosaurs in it. Unless you see some dinosaur legs. Yeah, or one of these ones floating out to get fossilized. A swimming stegosaurus. That's true. It could be. I doubt it, though. You never know. True. <laughs> it still hasn't been officially released, so maybe they'll sneak one in. Number five they gave to the Primal Rage series, which is a standard 2D fighting game, but with dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals. It's like an old, old school one, like Marvel and Capcom games where you're doing a lot of jumping and kicks and punches and, you know, those full circle combos or whatever. Number four, they gave to The Hunter Primal, which is another Steam game for PC. It's a lot like Ark, except that it's much more difficult, and you have to fight the dinosaurs. You can't tame them. And the first time I played it, I spent about 20 minutes running, trying to find anything, while slowly starving to death. And then I immediately got killed by something behind me. That doesn't sound fun. Yeah, it was pretty awful. Um, maybe it's gotten better, because I think I got that one on the pre-release, too. But I've found Ark Survival Evolved is way more fun. So, anyway. Next is Jurassic Park Operation Genesis, where you build your own Jurassic Park. So that's kind of cool. The game's from 2003. It looks kind of fun. Apparently a big part of it is placing your dinosaurs so they don't eat the visitors, which seems like a fun addition. Number two is The Isle. And this game looks super awesome. It came out two months ago for early access. It's not officially released yet on Steam. And I can't believe we didn't see it when it came out. Maybe we did mention it, and I just didn't realize how awesome it was. But it looks a lot like Ark Survival Evolved, except you play as an actual dinosaur, and you're just trying to survive in prehistoric time. So I think there are only predators because it says you have to hunt, and you basically sneak around and then try to eat other little dinosaurs and then escape and not get eaten by other bigger dinosaurs. It looks really fun. And number one, they gave to Dino D-Day, which was also released on Steam back in 2011. And it's basically a low-res World War II first-person shooter, but there are some dinosaurs thrown in with robotics and weapons. No idea why that would be better than the Isle, but <laughs> that's what they decided. it's dinosaurs and robots. I guess. But there were other dinosaur robot games I didn't like as much. I don't understand the metrics. I think the aisle looks the coolest, but... We don't know what the criteria was. We do not. Check some of those games out if you're interested. I know I will be. A lot of them sound awesome. And we'll have a link to all the games on our blog. Next up, Industrial Light and Magic, who worked on the visual effects for Jurassic World, released a new video. And we've seen some of this before, such as children on the backs of adults pretending to be baby dinosaurs. So children pretending to ride baby dinosaurs in the Jurassic World petting zoo. Yeah. 
But in this new video, it's about three minutes long, there's also clips of the movie with dinosaurs and clips that reveal how industrial light and magic made those effects. The beginning of the video is also pretty impressive. It shows all the visual effects that went into making the digital theme park Jurassic World. And we'll post the video on our blog so you can see it for yourself. Cool. One other clip, this time from the other big movie of 2015, Dinosaur Wise, The Good Dinosaur. And the article talks about how there's an exclusive on the Blu-ray, but they have the video up on their site, so I don't know how exclusive it is. But it shows Arlo and Spot playing hide-and-seek, and it's pretty funny. We'll post a link on our blog. Just as a side note, The Good Dinosaur comes out on February 23rd to own you know it's obviously already out in theaters or was out it's 23 dollars for the blu-ray dvd combo at both amazon and target right now and target will give you a five dollar gift card along with the purchase amazon doesn't and there's also a 3d blu-ray version for 36 dollars on amazon or 28 dollars at target so target's a better deal again and then target is selling a plain old dvd for 17 dollars also with a $5 gift card, which Amazon doesn't offer. So if you can, you're probably better off picking it up at Target. And just like with Jurassic World, it looks like the Blu-ray has the most special features. So that's the one we'll be getting, and then we'll review it as soon as we can get our hands on it. Yay! Last couple items in the news. There's a company in China that makes realistic dinosaurs, and the company is called... Zigong Changying Intelligent Technology Company, and their website features photos of animatronic dinosaurs that they've made that are now in the U.S., Chile, Russia, Dubai, Ireland, and even Thailand. And lastly, for anyone in Tucson, Arizona, the annual Tucson Gem, Mineral, and Fossil Showcase is going on between now and February 14th. Ooh, good Valentine's Day date. <laughs> the showcase is comprised of more than 40 sites, most of which are free to see. One site that sounds really cool is the 22nd Street Mineral and Fossil Show, which will showcase dinosaurs from tribal paleontology, including Ava the Ceratopsian. I know we've talked about Ava before on our show. Apparently, the Tucson Gem Show is so popular that they're thinking of doing it twice a year now. And Garrett and I are hoping to get there one of these days. Yeah, it's going to be hard to make it this year, but maybe if, if they do another one this year. Yeah, maybe. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. 
So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now on to the dinosaur of the day, Foster Rovinator, and that name means Foster's Hunter. So as you can guess, somebody named Foster... <laughs> made some paleontologists feel warm inside. In this case, it was another paleontologist. Actually, it was John R. Foster. This name of the dinosaur was a tribute to the American paleontologist. Venator means hunter. So there you go, Foster's hunter. Anyway, Foster Rovinator lived in the late Jurassic in the Morrison Formation of what is now Wyoming, and Charles Marsh and Arthur Lakes collected the bones in 1879, among crocodile teeth, turtle shells, and a juvenile Allosaurus and Torvosaurus. There's only one species, Fosterovenator churai, and that species wasn't named until 2014. So again, the genus is named after the American paleontologist John Foster, and it's to recognize his, quote, contributions to the study of the vertebrate fauna of the Morrison Formation, according to the paper New Data on Small Theropod Dinosaurs from the Upper Jurassic Morrison Formation of Como Bluff, Wyoming, USA. <laughs> and the name Churai comes from another American paleontologist, Daniel J. Chermu. The holotype was found at Como Bluff in Wyoming in Reed's Quarry, and it included a tibia and ankle bones that were fused together. It was probably of a juvenile, which makes it harder to determine how the dinosaur looked, since it probably looked different as an adult. The end of the tibia resembles the right tibia of a small theropod found in the Morrison Formation, originally thought to be a Laphrosaurus, which was named by Truer in 2001. But in 2008, Carano and Sampson said it may more resemble Tendigaroo than a Laphrosaurus, but there needs to be more complete specimens before we know for sure. So, Foster Rovinator is similar in shape to a Laphrosaurus, but also similar to Tendigaroo. It's too fragmentary to know exactly how large Foster Rovinator was. There was a second specimen found that had a right fibula of a larger individual. The fibula is 10.8 inches or 27.5 centimeters long. And what's interesting about Foster Rovinator is it shows there may have been more diversity of smaller theropods, which they lived among Allosaurus, Torvosaurus, and Ceratosaurus. And fossils of small and juvenile theropods are rare in the Morrison Formation. They were probably eaten. Makes sense. <laughs> and they probably hunted small prey, but they may have also scavenged on larger animals, such as sauropods, whatever leftovers the larger predators didn't want. And Fosterovenator is a ceratosaurid, but it's more closely related to Elaphrosaurus than to Ceratosaurus. Ceratosauridae is a family of theropods, and the type genus is Ceratosaurus. Ceratosaurids lived in the Jurassic and Cretaceous, 
And we talked about this family in depth in episode 45 with Ceratosaurus. But again, they lived in North America, Tanzania, and Portugal. Charles Marsh named the family Ceratosauridae for the type species in 1884. And this family has two types of teeth, one with longitudinal ridges and one with smooth enamel. They probably competed with allosaurs for food, at least the North American ones. And our fun fact of the day is that a T-Rex footprint is about 1.55 feet, or 46 centimeters long, but its feet were actually much longer, about 3.3 feet, or 1 meter long, and that's because T-Rex, like many other dinosaurs, walked on its toes. And that's according to EnchantedLearning.com. Does it walk on its toes so that it can quietly sneak up on its prey? Probably didn't hurt. I mean, you never really hear birds walking. Even like heavier birds, because they have pretty soft, the way their feet touch down. Oh, that is scary gentle. to think about. Yeah. Coupled with maybe T-Rex made no sounds at all. <laughs> yeah. Walked quietly, made no sounds, but it only went like five miles an hour. So you mm-hmm. just had to look around once in a while. You'd be okay. <laughs> They're going to sneak up on you. Depends how well it blended in. It's true. It was like Indominus Rex and it had the cuttlefish DNA, so it could... <laughs> camouflage itself <laughs> oh, and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino thanks for listening and if you like what you hear please support us visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino until next time you could tell from watching me walk on my dinosaur